Uh, we're going to do now what we do each Sunday. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, Bible app, um, however you access scriptures, also a Bible on the rack in front of you in, in the seat there. And if you can turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 26, beginning at verse 1. And when you found that, if you're able, if you could stand together with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to focus in particularly today on verses 6 through 13, but I want to start in verse 1 just to kind of give us the context of what's going on. So Matthew tells us this, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Here's where we're focused today. Verse 6, while Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will have with you always, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver, and from that time on, Judas watched for an opportunity to betray him. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this passage together. Spirit of God, I just ask that you would come now and illumine the preaching of your word. Open eyes and ears and hearts and minds to what you want to accomplish through this word. You tell us, you promise us that when you send out your word, it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Oh God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today, whatever that is. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, I know I've used this illustration at least once before in my time here as your pastor, but the fact remains that when a man loves a woman, it's like he can't keep his mind on, on anything else. He'd trade the world for the good thing he's found. He'd give up all his comforts, spend his very last dime just trying to hold on to what he needs. He, he'd even turn his back on his best friend if he put it down. True story. Facts. Uh, I can even remember, for that matter, uh, early on uh, when my wife and I were still dating back in those days, I was working most nights till like 12, 30, 1 in the morning. But still, somehow, because I had fallen in love with this woman, I'd be up outside her door at 8 a.m. to pick her up, take her to her morning class at UBC with her favorite Starbucks in the cup holder beside her, ready to go. Write this down, anyone, any single guys looking for tips? Um, 
You just, you do crazy stuff like this because it's just like you're in love. And yet, it's not like behavior like this is limited to romantic relationships alone. You see it in all kinds of other places as well, from sports fans with their favorite sports team to environmentalists chaining themselves to stuff. Um, when, when you're passionate about someone or something, you will give to them in ways that appear extravagant, that appear even wasteful to other people, and yet to you, in your eyes, they are entirely appropriate and warranted. And I bring it up as we return one last time, I promise you, <laughs> one last time to our teaching series through the Gospel of Matthew entitled Kingdom Come, which, believe it or not, some of you, you'll easily believe this, we've been in for three years now, actually. We've been in this series for three years, but, listen, we're going to complete, God willing, here. We're going to finally land this plane by the time we reach Advent with these last three chapters. But I bring up all this stuff about extravagant giving because what we see in our passage today in Matthew 26 is just such an act of extravagant service for Jesus. And you see those exact same polarized responses, right, to, to this act, where, where the act is seen as reckless and wasteful by Jesus' disciples, Judas in particular, and then seen as entirely appropriate and warranted by both the woman performing this service and even by Jesus himself. And we're going to get into some of the reasons for those responses as we go, both for the disciples' confusion and this woman's conviction. But before we do that, I feel like I just need to pause and just give thanks to God, just give glory to Him for some stuff that He's kind of just brought together for us uh, in this passage together and bringing us to it. Because, I mean, Courtney's just been talking about this. You see the tables. Uh, it's not a secret that we've kind of dedicated this service to kind of focus on the idea of service, to, to think and pray today about where God might be calling you to join in in some way in serving as a part of this gathering. But what you might be tempted to believe, and maybe you do believe, is that knowing we were going to be asking you to consider areas to serve today, that I sat down and, you know, thumbed through my Bible in order to try to find the, the perfect passage for today. What's going to be the thing that's, you know, going to, like, encourage everyone, <coughs> guilt um, people to sign up for something? You know, what, what can I do when the reality is, listen, while I absolutely appreciate your unfounded confidence that I can plan anything two and a half years in advance, um, nothing could be further from the truth. Okay, first of all, because my commitment to you, my promise is that I don't do that. Okay, I don't, I don't teach the Bible like that. My, my calling and job as your pastor is to help you understand God's word the best you can, not to use the Bible to try to get people to do stuff. All right, I'm not trying to manipulate people to do anything. But secondly, the reason you can know is because even if I did want to do that, I would never have chosen this passage at all. I mean, it's hard to encourage people to serve when in this passage, the person serving is, is people are indignant with them and strongly rebuking them. It's not exactly like an Expedia.com ad to service, being like, hey, let's go to that destination. Uh, I wouldn't have chosen this. And yet, I feel like God led me to this two years ago, and now, it's only as I've been studying it this week, I was like, oh man, this is really good. I was actually really blown up by this passage. It hit me in a whole new and different way than I've ever experienced it before, actually. 
powerful message that it held for me, for our church, as we think about what it means to give extravagantly in our service of Jesus uh, and what it looks like to serve uh, in his church that he loves so much. So, yes, I think the passage is perfect. I think there's a fit, absolutely. But I believe it's absolutely as a result of God's goodness to us and not any kind of planning on my part. So, in order to help you see what it is that God taught me here about service through this passage, as well as to experience the absolute blessing that Jesus promises here to those who will humbly bring all they have in service of him. I want to look at this amazing passage together with you in just three ways today. We're going to talk about how our service to Jesus is singular in focus. It is timely. And then we're going to close out by looking at how our service to Jesus is a response. All right, just those three things. Our service to Jesus Singular in focus, timely, and a response. So if you close your Bible, your Bible app, whatever you're using, could you open it again to this passage? love you to follow along with me as we unpack extravagant service in the kingdom and, and what are the things that should inspire us to such service in our lives today. Okay, so let's look how, first of all, our service to Jesus is singular in focus. Singular in focus and... What you need to know, first of all, before we dive into this, is that chapter 26 is actually the beginning of the very last section in Matthew's gospel. We've been talking throughout the years here about how Matthew's gospel is actually divided into five different sections altogether, with this last section here focused on the ultimate goal for which Jesus came, namely to give his life as a ransom for many. So back in verse 1, look there with me. When Matthew writes, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, that's Matthew signaling to us that he's making a transition now from Jesus' teaching ministry to this final journey to Jerusalem that Jesus takes where he will be crucified at the hands of the Romans, what is classically referred to as Jesus' passion. Okay, and as you can see in verse 2 there, Jesus absolutely has self-awareness himself that this is what's going to await him when he reaches Jerusalem. It's not a surprise to him. But my point in, in helping you to recognize that transition is that we need to have that same awareness now as well with everything else that we're going to look at in the remaining chapters of Matthew's gospel as well because that context matters. Right? It's going to have significance for everything else that we look at from this point forward, including this dinner scene from Simon the leper's house in Bethany beginning in verse 6. And again, this is where we're going to kind of focus today, so look there with me. Now, Bethany is a small village just outside Jerusalem, about two miles uh, outside of the city. And what we know from the account of Jesus' raising of Lazarus in John 11 is that Bethany is the hometown of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. Um, almost nothing is known about this guy, Simon the leper, except um, that... Uh, he clearly doesn't have leprosy anymore. It's likely that Jesus healed him, and so he just remains, he keeps that name as a marker of what Jesus has done for him, just mostly because um, there's no way anyone would have a dinner party at his house if he still had leprosy, right? It's nobody's going to join for a dinner party with someone with an infectious, incurable skin disease. But as we read on, what we see is that at some point in this dinner, a woman gets up, comes up to Jesus where he's reclining at the table, breaks an alabaster jar of expensive perfume and pours it over his head. 
Now, anointing dinner guests with oil, a simple oil or perfume as they entered a home, that was considered a common courtesy in this time. Same as in our day, maybe like taking someone's coat. It was seen as a common courtesy, mostly because um, you got to think about the fact that at this point in history, things like deodorant, uh, toothbrushes, those kinds of things haven't been invented yet. So this is a common courtesy to everyone, to uh, anoint the guests with a pleasant odor as they come into the home uh, to eat and sit in very close proximity with each other. But what this woman does, not common at all. This, this is like breaking an alabaster jar of expensive perfume, like she's breaking out the, the Tom Ford or whatever. Like this is not, you know... London Drugs fragrances here. She's breaking out the expensive perfume, pours the entire contents on his head. That was not common at all. In fact, if you just look at the response of Jesus' disciples there in verses 8 and 9, you can see, uh, if anything, it was considered outrageous, wasteful use of this perfume. Now, Mark and John, those two Gospels, both recount this exact same scene, which is cool because we get a few different details that we don't get in Matthew. Uh, First of all, we get the identity of this mystery woman in Matthew's gospel in that John tells us this was Mary. Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, uh, who apparently all three of them were all present at the dinner with Jesus. And secondly, what we also learn in John's gospel in particular is that not only does Mary perform this seemingly wasteful act of pouring this perfume on Jesus' head, she also gets down and pours the perfume on his feet, And then she takes her hair down and wipes his feet with her hair. Which I don't know what you think when you hear that. I mean, that sounds odd, I think, probably gross to a lot of us. But what you need to know is that Mary's actions in this time period, in particular, in this culture, you begin to see just how shocking and outrageous her actions truly are. As first of all, when it comes to Jews and touching other people's feet, it was just never done. You would never touch other people's feet. It was considered such a lowly act that even Jewish servants wouldn't be required to do it. So that's not part of it. Uh, Secondly, a woman in this culture would never uncover and let down her hair in front of anyone but her husband or, or very close family members. Okay, So to do this in front of anyone else would be considered provocative. Highly inappropriate for her to do. Now, there's lots more to look at and unpack in this story, but the reason I'm pointing out all this cultural stuff in particular is because I really want you to see, I want you to feel the singular focus that Mary had in this extravagant act of service that she gives to Jesus. Because, I mean, Mary's grown up in this culture, right? She is highly aware of every single one of the cultural boundaries that she's stepping over in this moment, right? She's not like, oh, I didn't know we weren't. She knows exactly what she's doing. She's anticipating and expecting the shock and horrified looks that she knows the other guests are going to give. Long before the, the strong, harsh rebuke of Jesus' disciples for her wasteful use of such an expensive possession. She knows all that, and yet, look, so singular is her focus on Jesus that it's almost as if there's nobody else even in the room as she comes to anoint Jesus with this perfume. It's like there's not even anybody else here. So the first thing I want us to think about when it comes to thinking about our own acts of service is that I think we need to have this exact same singularity of focus ourselves when we come to serve 
in our own context. Why? Well, for starters, because first of all, the response of others, the opinions of others, the past feedback of others is, is like one of the primary limiting factors that I hear from people all the time about why they can't serve. Uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't pray all fancy like so-and-so. I, I, could never, uh, I could never hold the attention of a group of kids. Uh, or even people saying things like, well, yeah, thanks for asking. I, I wanted to serve in that ministry at my last church, but the, the ministry leader told me I wasn't a good fit. So, you know, ever since then, I just not, can't do it. Add to that, then, our own inner voices of self-doubt, self-criticism, self-defeat. Or, and, and I see this all the time as well, uh, voices of, of pride and ambition. Uh, serving, as Jesus called out the Pharisees in Matthew 6, uh, in order to be seen by others. Add those voices into the mix, and all of a sudden, it's like there's a veritable mountain in between us and the things we might genuinely believe God's calling us to do. And so, thinking about that, I wonder if striving to have this same singularity of focus that we see Mary having here isn't essential. If, if that wouldn't change the landscape, if that wouldn't quiet down so many of those voices, both without and within when we see Jesus first and foremost as the one we're serving. Regardless of what ministry it is we're serving in, regardless of the size of the group we're serving, if we see Jesus first and foremost, he's the one we're serving. Okay, of course, none of that is, is to the exclusion of considering things like aptitude, uh, gifting, even capacity for people who are busy with life, maybe serving in a lot of other ministries. I'm not saying we ignore those things. But I think many of those obstacles that we often encounter, fears, doubts, excuses that we make, are largely cleared away when, as the saying goes, we come to understand that in the end, our acts of service ultimately have an audience of one. Okay, so that's what it means to be singular in focus. I, I'm seeing Jesus. He's first and foremost the one I'm serving. I think it clears away, or it should clear away, a lot of those things, obstacles that get in the way. Uh, the next thing I want to look at together with you is the way our acts of service must be timely. Timely. And what I mean by timely is simply that we consider that there's certain opportunities that come for service that don't have an unlimited time frame for us to be able to respond to. And where you see that in our passage here, let's just pick up the story again where we left off. Mary, right, singular in her focus. She has just performed this extravagant act of service for Jesus, anointing him with this costly ointment, uh, wiping his feet with her hair. And in response, right, Jesus' disciples go ballistic. They are our full-on angry bylaw officer on her about all that she's done here. Uh, and you don't really get the sense of it in Matthew's gospel because it just says indignant. Like kind of they were offended. Like, huh, sounds more British. Like uh, how, how awful that she would do such a thing. But, but you really get a sense in John and Mark's gospels because they say that, that they are harshly rebuking Mary, totally calling her out here, kind of reminding her as if she wasn't aware already. This costly perfume she just dumped out on Jesus could have been sold. Uh, apparently, this would have been worth, at this time, a year's wages, this perfume she's dumping out. They're reminding her, we, we could have sold this and used that money to help feed the poor. So as you can see, mansplaining was a thing even in the first century. Wanting to help Mary just see, like, listen, you, maybe you didn't know, but we could have sold this. 
Which, I mean, given all that Jesus has been teaching about money over the course of his ministry, it, it, it feels like a rebuke. The disciples probably think Jesus is going to join them in. You know, Jesus has been talking about wise use of money, and now clearly she's not being wise. You know, maybe Jesus won't be as harsh as they were, maybe more like, you know, Mary, thank you, but, you know, we really should have thought about how we could use this. But look at verse 10. Look at this. Instead, rather than rebuking her, Jesus is commending her. He, he's, he's defending her with her actions, saying, she's done a beautiful thing for me. Why are you troubling her? Why are you bothering her? Interpreting her anointing of him, he says, as preparing his body for burial. An action that, according to Jesus, he says, what she's done is of greater importance in this moment than whatever good could have been done from selling this and using the proceeds to serve the poor. And I think we need to be careful about how we tread going forward here because it'd be easy to misunderstand that, to read this and kind of misunderstand Jesus as kind of saying, and I've heard people say this, that, that Jesus is saying here, you know what, guys, who cares about the poor? I mean, I'm here, look at me, huh? don't, don't I matter more to you than some poor people? There's always going to be poor people, but me, I'm here. I'm the person you should be serving, when actually nothing could be further from the truth. And I think this is even more clear in the other gospel accounts, but it's even clear enough here in verse 11. Look there. Jesus is in no way devaluing the poor, saying that service to them doesn't matter, but only, look, that there was something unique, something unique about Jesus' incarnation, his physical presence in general, as well as the fact that his time on earth is rapidly drawing to a close. That that, something about that uniqueness is what makes Mary's action beautiful and not wasteful. Service is timely because Jesus is not going to be present here physically much longer. An understanding, although it's not explicitly stated here, that I think Mary had. I think she had, and therefore that's what led her to be able to have this singularity of focus. I think Mary was one of the few, maybe even the only one present at this dinner party who was actually listening to Jesus, who believed him when he talked about what he would suffer at the hands of the chief priests and elders when he went to Jerusalem, that this wasn't just some kind of parable, some sort of metaphorical suffering, but that Jesus was actually going to die. I think she, she was listening and she believed. And therefore, understanding this likely being as one of the last opportunities she thinks she'll ever have to honor Jesus in life, she performs this act of extravagant service that would only be done to a body after death. Without a doubt, this is precisely, I think, why Jesus calls Mary's act beautiful and not wasteful. She's seizing the moment because she sees I don't have much time left. There's not an unlimited time to respond. If I want him to know how much I love him, how much I care, I need to do this now. When it comes to our extravagant acts of service today, I think, first of all, this is a word to someone who maybe feels called to join in, to help out in some ministry, but maybe, I don't know, you, you look around and you see there's a lot of people serving in that ministry already, and you sort of conclude to yourself, well, you know what? They got lots of people. I'm going to just hold off for now. Check, check back. Check back in a few months. See if the need's still there. Not realizing that yeah, some ministries just have more moving parts. There's more organizational needs, so they require more people. But that leader is likely still desperate to have more people come alongside and help them carry that load. 
I think this is also a word for those various times in a year when we come to you with what we would call maybe one-off ministries, things like uh, Christmas at Dunbar, Easter at Dunbar, uh, the Halloween hot chocolate tent, uh, fall kickoff, hampers of hope, these kinds of things, uh, things that, opportunities that require a lot of hands in order to make happen, or otherwise they actually won't happen at all. Um, they, 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 if we can't find enough help to run them, I guess is what I'm saying, they just, they won't run. There again, that kind of holding back, wait and see approach to this timely need could mean that the opportunity is lost entirely. So again, the point at the end of the day is just to consider that some need certain opportunities for service. They don't have an unlimited time frame to respond to them. So if you're sensing God's call to serve in some area, if you're feeling that presence or that push to just respond to it today step out and and try with the promise listen i I promise you if and when we ever get to the place where a ministry or certain ministries have no further need for any volunteers where i can say to you hey thanks so much for your willingness to serve with kids we got more people than we know what to do with so would you be willing to serve someone else when that happens i'll let you know okay i promise you You'll be the first ones to know. The reason I've never told you that in all my years of being here, we, just, we never had that particular problem yet. So if you feel the call today, respond to the need in a timely way. Okay, we've seen the way of service, how it must be singular in focus. We've talked about how certain needs are timely. There's not this unlimited time frame to respond. Last thing I want to look together with you in closing is how our service to Jesus is a response. It's a response. And where you see that in our passage is in looking one last time at the extravagant gift that Mary pours out in service of Jesus in verse 7. If you look with me there. We know what Mary did with the perfume, and we know we consider what the approximate value of her offering was. Remember, it's about one year's wages value of this thing. But what we have still yet to consider is the value that this offering had to Mary. What did it mean to her that she was offering this? For as numerous commentators pointed out, unless her family were like ridiculously wealthy people in this day and age, this alabaster jar of perfume was very likely the most valuable thing they had, the most valuable thing that they owned, likely a family heirloom passed down over the generations that was kind of a final safeguard against destruction. If there was a famine, they couldn't afford to eat anymore. If there was an invasion, this was the shoebox under the bed. This was the safe buried in the backyard that would save them from utter destruction if that, ever, if that day ever came. But that's what Mary takes. Takes down off the shelf, breaks open, and pours out not just a couple of drops, on Jesus as a kind of token offering. She dumps the entire thing out on Jesus' head and feet down to the very last drops. And the question we need to answer in response to Mary's extravagant service is why? Why would she do that? What was it about Jesus that prompted Mary to lay down not just her financial security? Remember, she's like, getting down on her knees at Jesus' feet, wiping her feet with her hair. She's laying down her her pride as well as her heart's devotion as well. What is it about Jesus that would lead her to do this? 
And the answer to that becomes clear when you look at the scene from this same story in our passage today found in John 12. Remember, these are accounts that are told in different gospel accounts. And when you compare the feasting and celebration of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus in John 12 with the utter despair and desperation of John 11, you begin to see that this extravagant act of service was nothing to do with trying to earn Jesus' favor or get points with Jesus because look at what I'm doing. But it was Mary's response to everything that Jesus had done for her and her family. Because Mary, she was already a follower of Jesus, right? She was a follower of his. She loved Jesus. She served Jesus. She listened. Oh, Mary listened in a way that few others did, right? Remember there's that scene in Luke 10 where she was like sitting at Jesus' feet as he's teaching the other men, something in that culture which women, generally speaking, weren't permitted to do. She's sitting there listening, and Martha's freaking out about, I need help. And Jesus is like, she's chosen the better thing, to sit and listen. But if you don't know the story, just a few days before that scene of breaking this alabaster jar, Mary's brother Lazarus, far from like sitting back chilling with a, a lamb kebab or anything, was lying sealed in a tomb, having been dead four days already before Jesus finally showed up. It's a scene that had led to so much deep pain and, and confusion for Mary and Martha, not only because they loved their brother and he was dead, but because they knew Jesus loved Lazarus and that he had the power to save him, and he hadn't shown up in time to save him. He was, as the saying goes, Jesus was very much late to the party. And yet there, in the midst of Mary's angry accusation, or Martha's angry accusation and Mary's kind of wordless devastation, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus meets them. He meets them in exactly the place where they needed to be met, and then rolling away the stone from Lazarus' tomb, he raises their brother up from the dead once again. Okay? That's, that's what had preceded this extravagant service that we see in our passage today, this transformation in a moment from devastation to celebration. That's what leads into this dinner party at Simon the leper's house, making it so much more. Her service isn't just kind of a triumphalist religiosity here where she's trying to like do, make this big offering in order to impress Jesus and impress others. Mary's offering is the raw, heart's deep response of someone who'd come to see who Jesus truly is and desired to honor him while she still had time left for everything that he'd done by laying down everything she had in service of him. I love uh, Keller's blending of Mary's extravagant service with the words of a well-known hymn when he writes this. He said, you know what she's actually doing? When she breaks the alabaster jar, she's saying, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. When she falls at Jesus' feet, she's saying, take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. And when she lets down her hair, she says, take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee. Of course, Mary had no concept in that moment that this wouldn't be the last opportunity she had to honor Jesus at all. As the very same power that he had used to raise her brother Lazarus from the, day, from the dead would be the same power by which he himself 
had victory over death. That miracle of miracles, which Mary was actually one of the first ones to witness as Jesus rose again three days after being crucified. And yet I wonder, even if she had known that Jesus was going to rise again three days after being crucified, if she would have done anything differently. I don't know. But that's, but that's Mary. That's Mary's extravagant service. What about you? What about me? Living this side of the resurrection today, what's, how do we respond to that? And the question that I want to leave you with today in closing as we think about that is, who is Jesus and what has he done for you? Not, uh, uh, hey, what are the different opportunities here that you might be interested in serving in? Not uh, what gifts or abilities do you have that you feel like you could use in serving in order to see God's kingdom grown here in this neighborhood? Who is Jesus? And what has he done for you? Because I think that's, it's only being able to answer that question you'll be able to truly respond to the call today to serve. Because there's all kinds of other motivations for that. I mean, you could serve out of guilt or obligation, like, oh, fine, I guess I'll sign up for something, okay? Uh, you could serve out of a sense of kind of like pride or, or, or wanting to look good and impress other people. Oh, you only signed up for one thing? I signed up for three. Whatever. There's all those kinds of motivations. You could sign up to serve for something just because you love this church. You love this community and you want to try to pour back in something of what has been poured into you. Great. But I believe it's only in seeing your service first and foremost as a response to who Jesus is as well as all that he's done for you that you'll be enabled to serve with this kind of extravagant service in a way that Jesus says lives on in memory long after our lifetimes. But if you think about it, all those other motivations, um, they, they can be taken from you. They all have a shelf life. Right? But the precious gift of Jesus' own blood poured out in full on the cross for the sins of the world, right? Jesus' extravagant act of service for you and for me, that is a motivating force that will never lose its power to call us to an extravagant response ourselves.